when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. This week, we're launching a special mini-series we're calling the Centennial Series, featuring companies that have been in business for more than 100 years. Up first, I'm talking to Steve Banderzak, the CEO of Xerox, an iconic company that got started all the way back in 1906 as a manufacturer of photo paper, and of course, is best known for pioneering the copy machine. Here in 2023, Xerox has moved well beyond paper. It now works with companies large and small as a provider of IT services. It optimizes their workflows, manages data, automates entire parts of businesses, and yes, it still fixes the printers. And fixing those printers is getting high tech. Steve is really excited about Xerox's new AR app that walks you through getting the copy machine working again so you don't have to wait for a technician to come and fix it. Now, Xerox is 100 years old. There's a lot of drama in its history to talk about, but Steve's chapter as CEO also started with some drama. Steve joined Xerox as COO at a time of significant upheaval. Its largest shareholders, including activist investor Carl Icahn, had killed a merger with Fuji and installed completely new leadership. Those new executives quickly turned to trying to take over HP, which ultimately didn't happen. And along the way, Xerox's CEO, Steve's boss, died suddenly, and Steve had to take over as CEO. We talked about all of that, a complicated modern chapter in the story of a 100-year-old company. We also talked about the future of Xerox's legendary Palo Alto Research Center, or PARC, whether Xerox wants to acquire more companies and consolidate the industry further, and at the end, we spitballed some ideas on how to get Gen Z excited about printers. It's the first company in our Centennial series, Xerox CEO Steve Banderzak. Here we go. Steve Banderzak, you are the CEO of Xerox. Welcome to Decoder. Great to be here. Honored to be on your show. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk to you. We're doing a series on companies that are over 100 years old. Xerox is one of those companies. It has an enormous legacy in tech, in office culture, in American business history. A lot to unpack. It's become several kinds of different companies over the years. Let's start at the very beginning. What was it like for you to join a company with that kind of legacy how much did you think about that history when you joined Xerox? Yeah, look, uh, no secret. I joined to you know make Xerox successful for the next hundred years. The brand, the history, the rich heritage of our customers, the rich heritage of our employees, the rich heritage of our shareholders, and the people that we impact on the daily lives and the communities that we're in was extremely important to me. So you know, I took it on as a, a passion to make sure that Xerox is positioned for the next hundred years. You joined. As COO, there's a little bit of 
activist investor drama that I want to get into there. But when you joined a COO to say, okay, here's the few, the next hundred years of Xerox, were you thinking, okay, there's a vision here that I believe in, or were you thinking, boy, we've got to come up with an, a hundred year plan to change the company? No, you look, I saw it from the outside, a couple of things. First of all, you know, free cash flow over a billion dollars. Uh, it was an industry that I thought needed to be consolidated. And if you followed the strategy, you know, we were working through a very difficult time uh, in terms of our relationship with Fuji Xerox, in terms of what had just happened with the board and the previous CEO. But it was obvious to me that the opportunity to consolidate the industry and reposition Xerox in the future was significant and the opportunity was in front of us. You know, we spent a lot of time in really working on that consolidation strategy, improving our free cash flow so that the balance sheet was ready for consolidation, was ready for the activities that we're looking for. And, you know, prior to COVID, we had made the acquisition or the opportunity to acquire HP. And, you know, Xerox then made the position of going uh, a little bit more hostile uh, in terms of creating a slate of uh, taking over the, the HP board. And obviously COVID hit, we had to pull that offer and, you know, last 30 months has been uh, holding on to the reins. Uh, but it really was a consolidation strategy when I joined the company. I want to talk about that consolidation strategy, what you've had to do over the past few years of COVID to come out of that and people are in offices or out of offices. Xerox plays a huge role in all of that, but let's just lay the foundation. I think people know Xerox most famously as a copier company, maybe a printer company. What are your lines of business now? What does Xerox do? Yeah. So if you think about, you know, we're still significantly in the office print business as well as in the production business. But we have also grown other areas of our business, uh, like IT services uh, today. We have a very large IT services business, uh, mostly focused in the mid-market where customers and the mid-market don't have the opportunity uh, to bring the same enterprise resources to bear as the large enterprise do. So you'd be surprised to know that we do robotics as a service, AI as a service, cybersecurity as a service. Uh, we can do CIO in a box where we literally can help our enterprise customers across the business. And you say, why? what gives us the credibility and how do we do that? Well, we already have the relationships in things like managed print services. We already have a technician, already have a sales team. I am inside of a university or inside of a hospital or inside of a church or inside of a lower office. And now we're bringing incremental services around IT services. So things like payables, things like HR solutions, where you can bring in a resume and we can run it against your open jobs. And so we're using a lot of the stuff that we're using internally, we're bringing that to market on IT services. The second piece of the strategy is really thinking about workflow in verticals. So if you think about today, we're in large shops today, and we understand their workflow because we understand their documents. We understand their document flows. So how do you bring solutions in and around our A3 devices or office devices? You know, our A3 products has a GBU chip in it, has a screen. And you got those two things. What solutions can you bring? So we bring things like translation services to schools and universities. So if I'm a Dallas school district and I am an administrative and staff that is understaffed and I can't handle the amount of students and I can't bring 
good, productive education, I'm looking for solutions. So things like I can grade papers, I can do plagiarism against papers, I can do document translation to multiple languages. I can have students speak in English and translate to Spanish. We also have a very large cloud business. Most people don't recognize the amount of print that we store in the cloud. And obviously the next layer is how do you bring insight to those documents? How do you bring workflows to those documents? The last piece is we started more out of necessity and it was a critical thing that we had to do is, you know, I've got my, my technicians when COVID hit, we couldn't go on to customer sites. And so we started a product called CareAR. We're using augmented virtual reality, using video instruct and using AI. We can do things like remote solve. So those are examples of things that we're trying to do and trying to grow the business in our non-core business. So there's a really interesting split there, right? There's something that started very physical. Xerox is a company that prints the documents and copies the documents in your office. And then you're saying, okay, the printers have become more complicated. I'm putting chips and screens in your office. Yeah. Now I can ship software to your office. Now the documents are going away. They're becoming virtual. I'm rolling out a suite of pretty high-end computing and consulting services in your office. And I'm basically helping you manage what used to be a piece of paper, but now are documents, whether they're paper or virtual, across the company. Do you think of Xerox as a is a documents business? Is it a consulting business? What's your conception of the company? Yes and yes, right? So we do and we can handle documents, but we're getting more into how do you unpack the value that's in those documents, right? So if you think about printing as just printing a piece of paper, I think about it differently. I think about the data that's on that paper. I think about the data that's being scanned each and every day in the devices. And how do I start to bring insight and how do I start to bring value to both documents and things that are scanned? So we're trying to drive workflow solutions and trying to bring intelligence, things like artificial intelligence on top of the documents and environment that we're in, adding robotics as a service and adding other services and insight to the documents that go through our devices. When you say robotics, we've had UiPath CEO Daniel Dines on the show. Yeah. We've talked about robotic process automation a lot on the show. I think it's undercovered in the broader yeah. tech and business landscape. It's a huge business. That's specifically what you mean, right? This sort of automated document handling, the translation between two different systems that's, that's occurring. But it's not just documents, right? Think about, so I scan a resume into my office device. I now have a resume that has information on it. What can I do with that? Well, I can simply load it into your backend Workday solution or your backend Oracle solution. And I can use robotics to do that, RPA to do that. But I can also add artificial intelligence on top of that that says, this is the type of person that I've just received that resume. And how do I look against your open positions and the other attributes that I need for that open position using artificial intelligence and try to get a probability match against that? Think about invoices or think about I get supply chain updates. So yes, it's robotics as a service and using UiPath to ingest documents into multiple systems. I can do the traditional swivel chair and enter data from one system to another. But as I'm doing that, I'm now adding AI. I'm now adding intelligence on top of that. If you think about static data today, 
yeah, I can move information from one system to another. But think about data in motion. Think about sensor data. Think about supply chain data. Think about GPS data. How do you go make this sale? So I'm, I'm a mid-size, Midwestern manufacturing company. Yeah. I've been I don't know, making bottles for 200 years. Xerox shows up and there's you going data in motion. Like there's like a huge educational component of just what the hell are you talking about? But then there's, you got to sell it and you got to show a return on adding a bunch of computers and complexities and consultants and all of it. How do you show that return? So a couple of things. One, I think the macro trends are our friend right now, Mm -hmm. right? If you think about the hybrid work environment, we've actually embraced it because there is a new way of working and we've got to drive that productivity in that new way of working. Whether it's around the remote worker, whether it's around you think about patients that you don't want to come into your clinic because you want to do things remotely, right? So there's a new way of working and how do you make work work. We've been in that business for a long time and we embrace the hybrid work environment. That's number one. Number two, the macro trend of inflationary costs, especially on mid-sized businesses, is incredibly challenging. Look, the big banks, the big auto industries, the big enterprises, they have IT organizations to go drive productivity. Mid-market does not. Right. So if you think about hospitals, you think about, you know, your schools, they're all challenged with tremendous inflationary costs. They're also challenged with labor challenges. Look, we're almost at full employment, and yet there's a tremendous amount of jobs out there that can't be filled. So what do we bring? We bring productivity solutions and we bring solutions to help them with those particular challenges. So let's break it down a little bit. If I go into a university or I go into a hospital, How do I start to do the administrative tasks through technology, bringing in patients, discharging patients, thinking about pharmaceutical and how we administer drugs? I can do all that with technology and I can reduce the amount of labor that needs to go on those things. Right. So those macro trends are helping us. And it's really around customer success. We try to think about how do we drive customer success and start the story with our customers, not with technology, because you're overwhelmed if you start talking about UiPath or CrowdStrike. (laughs) But if you talk about what is their success, how do I help them with discharging patients faster? How do I think about getting more patients through the clinic faster? How do I think about impacting law firms by getting things into the judicial system faster with more accuracy. That's how we start the conversation. The beauty is our customers trust our brand. They trust our security. And that's a big thing, by the way. If you think about they trust us with security and you say printers and security, my printers are behind their firewall. I integrate into their security LDAP system or their security system in terms of printing documents, securing documents, classified documents, making sure that we redact things in law firms so it doesn't print based on security. The other thing that's important is they love our technicians. Our technicians have been (laughs) on site. They trust us. And so when we bring things like I can do Wi-Fi and I can do robotics as a service, we're already a trusted name and a trusted brand and a trusted technician. You've got the guy who can fix the printer. Exactly. It's like the most trusted person in the entire company is the guy who can fix the printer. 
I love the idea that the printer is like a Trojan horse into like this entire managed services operation that you're building. Print is important. Go into a Target, go into a Walmart, go into a Home Depot, walk down the shelves and see all the print that's done there. Uh, and you'd be surprised how important print is still in retail and all these industries. So I have a sense of where Xerox is now. I want to eventually talk about where you're going to take it. Let's talk about how we arrived at this place, specifically you as the CEO. It's a hundred year old company. It doesn't matter what company is over a hundred years. There's a lot of drama inside of a hundred year old organization. There's a lot of uh, peaks and valleys. You came in at what you might think of as kind of a valley, right? The previous administration of the company, like you said, had tried to pursue a joint venture with Fuji. Carl Icahn, who's a very famous activist investor, said, no, you're not doing that. Took over the board, fired all those people. You came in. How did you reset the culture of the company in that moment, right? I mean, that's a pretty massive change for an old brand, but you're the new leadership and you're saying all this plan that you had heard about before, it's out the window. We're doing something else. How'd you manage that change? So I started with a couple of things. First, we are Xerox, the proudness and the heritage of who we are, where we came from. And it's not just technology. It's not just printers, not just our products. It's our employee resource group. It's Palo Alto Research Center that has created trillions of dollars with a T of value around the world, not necessarily for Xerox, but for other companies. It's very famous for helping other companies and helping products and services in Silicon Valley. You go to Silicon Valley today, it's still one of the pride locations and the pride centers that people go visit, right? So it's our proud heritage of innovation. Number two, I said, we've got the intelligence, the capability, the technology to position ourselves for the next hundred years. Nobody thinks of us as doing things like AI and machine learning and IoT did. I got 11, you know, over seven to 8 million connected devices out there. I am in the IoT world. I do have a cloud solution, right? So the first thing was to get the entire environment and the employee base educated on what we have and where we're going. Same thing with our customers, by the way, right? When I go and I talk to large telco customers about what we're doing in the service industry, guess what? They've got the same challenges. 50% of my workforce is going to retire over the next three to five years, 50%. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with a 30-day technician and a 30-year experience technician and close that knowledge gap? We created something called Carryo with augmented virtual reality with AI. Think about today, and I'll, I'll give you a real-world example and show you how we're repositioning ourselves as a service company. You know, you think about, you get a call at home today. It could be a Verizon, it could be Comcast. Pick your internet provider of choice. It typically is you call up an 800 number, you tell them I got a problem. Okay, what's your serial number, sir? And you go in the closet and you dig out the device and you find the serial number. Yes, you're a very good, loyal customer. We'll be there in two to five days. And oh yeah, by the way, it'll be between eight and noon. <laughs> technician shows up. If the technician has 30 years experience with the right part, you're probably in good shape. If a technician shows up and they don't have all the experience with the right part, you typically have a second call. Let me tell you how that looks like today in the Xerox world. One of my devices starts to fail. I have an error code. My error code automatically gets detected by my central support desk out in St. John's. I then send to my customer a CareR link, which is an augmented virtual reality link 
that says, can we do a link and we will help you with self-diagnosis? By the way, inside my call center, I use artificial intelligence against my millions and millions of transactions in service now that I've solved the problem, along with all my engineering notes. And I bring to the remote technician the top three ways to solve that problem. So I'm using artificial intelligence to bring the best solution. I'm using my customer in the field to start that whole process in terms of solving the problem. By the way, if I can't solve it with augmented virtual reality and my customer, when I send out my technician, that whole session has already been stored. So when I show up at your house, I don't start with what's your problem. I already know what's going on, right? So we're changing the whole service experience. That gets our employees excited. Oh, we are an augmented virtual reality. <laughs> we use AI, right? And so when you see things and announcements that come out from Microsoft around AI, guys, we're already doing that. It's embedded in our product. We're already using it. That's what gets the team excited. And by the way, it recruits. It's our ability to go to universities and recruit talent and talk about what we're doing here in Xerox. Let me just ask about Care AR really quickly, because you mentioned it several times, you, you seem very proud of it. You, you're probably augmented in virtual reality. You send me a link. I'm assuming I open the link on my phone and I point my phone camera at the printer and it highlights the parts of the printer and says, check the toner. I've, I've outlined it in green or check the printer feed path, whatever it is. I've outlined that in green. And the phone is looking at the printer and guiding you through what you should fix. Correct. And I also have side-by-side, side, I've got a picture, a 3D model of that particular printer, and I can take you through annotation where you should look for and what you should do on your live printer, right? So it's a side-by-side, side, and I can say, well, don't press that button. Here it is. Let me circle it. Go hit this button, right? I can see what you can see as well as you can see a 3D drawing on an annotation on how you see a side-by-side side image. So to the audience on Decoder... This sounds like a dream, right? I get to fix the thing on my own. I get to try a cool new thing my phone can do. I can finally use the, the LiDAR sensor on my iPhone 14 Pro Max. <laughs> nobody else uses yeah. it for now. All this stuff is great. For the average person, that's a lot of learning to do, right? You've now offloaded a bunch of tasks, which maybe will help them fix the problem faster. But you've got to teach them that AR exists You've got to teach them that their phone has this capability. You've got to get them to download an app, which frankly is maybe the hardest single thing in all of technology to do yeah. is get someone to download an app and register for it and, and jump through all the hoops. How do you solve that problem? So let me ask you a question. I'm going to send a technician two to three days from now between eight and 12, but do you want to start right now? Right? It, it's, it's that self-solve world, self-serve world that we're in. You know, look, you go to New York and how many times do you watch taxis go by you a hundred times and you think you got a great experience because you're waiting for Uber that's 15 <laughs> minutes away. You're in control, right? And so the, the video piece of it, people are very comfortable with, all right? We're getting much more attraction in terms of people using it. It's not 100%, right? Because people are sometimes nervous about downloading something. You know, they don't want to use their own personal phone for work solutions. But where we do see it, where we do see the uptake, it is over 90% customer success. And the reuse is very, very high, 95%, where they reuse it again. And a lot of my production shops, you know, you think about an A4 in an office, but think about production shops. You know, you go into a Staples today, you go into Office Depot, and you see the big production prints. If they're not printing, they're not making money. 
So those operators want things like care AR. They don't want to wait for a technician to come in. And certainly when they want a technician to come in, it needs to be for the hard stuff, not just to fix a paper jam or not just to do something that I could have done on my own. We'll get into the M&A drama Steve walked into when he joined Xerox and how he's redirecting the company after the break. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try. Explore. Connect. Pivot. Transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com slash US slash innovate. We're back. So you come in in 2018 as COO. You put together a plan with the former CEO, John Vicentin, called Project Own It. I am always joking that Fundamentally Decoder is a podcast about org charts. Walk me through what this project is and, and how you change the structure of the company. Yeah, so when I got to the company, one of the things that I said was we had to simplify everything we did end to end and drive a faster velocity. And we use Project Owned to do that. Project Owned was around, and we've, we have taken over $2 billion of costs out, but it wasn't the end, the end goal of Project Owned. Project Owned was about how do we get more velocity in everything we do? How do we get simpler, easier to do business with? How do we get simpler internally? We had 2,000 plus IT applications running the business. And when you got that many applications, you have bespoke processes, you have multiple ways of doing things. So how do you simplify that, right? It also is about launching new products and services, right? Because we knew that print, even before COVID, was under a lot of pressure, right? It was declining two to three points per year, and it was on a steady downcline, right? And then obviously COVID hit and accelerated that. So only it was two pieces of what reinvesting in things that we needed to do to reinvest our company, carry out with one of those things, IT services with another piece. But at the same time, we had to really start to look at driving efficiencies for our company. And Project Donut became both an internal and an external rallying cry. If you follow our investors, you follow you know, all the calls over the last you know, four years, they asked very specifically about Project Donut. Why? It drive more cash flow, it drive more EBITDA expansion, obviously drove our stock price uh, when it was rising pretty significantly prior to COVID. I ask this question every time somebody comes in at the behest of an investor. This is the classic thing that the outside investor does, right? They, they take over a big chunk of the company. They say your plan is wrong. They get rid of the old administration. They bring in the new guys. And the new guys cut costs and make the company more efficient. I mean, this is the entire game. Is that part of what you were setting out to do with Own It? Or was it actually this company is in a tailspin, we need to make it smaller so we can eventually make it bigger? No, it was get it smaller so that we can create the balance sheet that allowed us to consolidate mm -hmm. the industry, right? Think about, we were very public with the number with HP. We thought there would be $2 billion of synergies. We had borrowed or we had got a loan for $24 billion. We didn't, couldn't get there until we had our own balance sheet, right? 
And we yeah. put over $2 billion on the balance sheet and got in a position where we consolidate the industry. We wanted to be the consolidator, not the consolidated, right? And so it was very important to us to get the balance sheet right, get the company right. By the way, you can't integrate two companies if you don't have the foundation of a project like Own It. Project Own It put in place the discipline of how you drive projects, how you drive synergies, how you drive rigorous change inside the company, rewiring your company. And it's the same thing when you put two companies together. You know, I've had over 70 M&As in my background. If you don't know, I did the IBM PC spin out, was part of the team that helped split HP. So, you know, my background is big M&A and integration. When I got here, it didn't have that muscle, didn't have that energy. Project Own It was a part of putting that in the DNA of the company as well. Let me just ask the dumbest version of this question. Carl Icahn shows up, says, this Fuji joint venture is stupid. I don't want to do it. I'm getting rid of you guys. I'm bringing in you guys. And you guys are going to get the company ready for more M&A. So why was Fuji the wrong choice in this HP deal that actually didn't end up going through? But why was HP the right choice? When you put two companies together, you're looking for a couple of things, right? What's the synergies between the two companies, right? Geography synergies, product synergies, you know, the synergies on back office infrastructure, et cetera. So the, for me, HP was a perfect synergistic play for the two companies from a product standpoint. They're really good in A4. We were really good in A3. Geographic, we aligned pretty well. We had a, a very good synergistic, and I, we talked about it publicly. It was $2 billion of value we thought we can generate there. On the Fuji deal, the reality was that the shareholders, right, specifically our largest shareholder, did not see the value for the current Xerox shareholders putting the two companies together, right? And so it was more the economics of the deal, and I can't speak for our largest shareholder, but uh, obviously the economics of the deal didn't make sense. They obviously voted it down, and they wanted to bring in a new team to go in a different direction. How often do you talk to Carl now? I mean, you're the CEO of the company. He's still your largest shareholder. You've had to change the plan. Are you checking in? For sure. Check in with all my largest shareholders, right? Trying to make sure. And, and by the way, even investors that are not shareholders today, what's the Xerox story? You know, a lot of things I'm sure you're surprised on with today's call, right? And so what's the Xerox story? Where are you going? Is it just a print business? Is it just a dividend business? You know, where do you see the growth coming from? So for sure, talk to our largest shareholders and as well as uh, investors that are not now stock today. An enormously challenging part of this journey has to be that you came on a COO with John Vicente, who's a CEO. He, he died very suddenly, very tragically young, and you became the CEO. First of all, I just imagine that was incredibly difficult. It was. John was a good friend. I knew John 20 plus years, worked side by side with him. Uh, June 28th, 8 o'clock at night, his wife called me MJ uh, and said John had passed. And then she followed that by John loved you. And, and it was probably one of the emotional times in my life, you know, and then you get into all of a sudden I got to call HR, have to call the legal team, board meeting the next day. They put you in his interim. I've got to notify John's staff. I've got to notify employees. You can't get out in front of the family because the family has to make public statements. And yet as a public company, we've got to make statements. Extremely, extremely hard. It really was. And crucially for the first 48 hours. I didn't think I wanted the job this way. And I, I felt that personal attachment. I've got an incredible wife and, you know, she kicked me in the butt and said, Hey, this isn't about you. This is about a company. This is about a great brand. This is about 25,000 employees. This is about all the customers, the communities we're in, you know, 
put your pants on and go to work. And, uh, you know, the board, I'm very thankful, has put me in this leadership role. But yes, it was extremely difficult to take the rein. You know, Q3 for us was extremely difficult, just emotional, right? Coming off of 30 months between supply chain issues, Ukraine-Russia issues, you know, all the things that we would challenge with then losing the leader of our company, Q3 was rough. And, you know, thank God we've steadied the ship and turned around. We had a really good Q4 and the company's back on track. Have you made any major changes to the plan or the roadmap since you became CEO or are you still on the same track? Did, made a couple. So if you go back to investor day uh, back in January, you know, just like a lot of the industry, we had made some bets in some longer term horizons. We had started a company called LQ, which is around sensors uh, on bridges. And we did a joint venture with the Australian government. We had launched a little company called Mojave, which is really around HVAC technology. We had launched a little company called Novity, which is around sensors in manufacturing. Uh, and then we had started a 3D business. All of those were three to five year horizons before you had businesses that would break even. And they were, you know, they were costing us pretty significantly, you know, in combination, we were running up millions of dollars per one. And, you know, we were years away from breaking even. I had to pull that back. Right. And for two reasons. Number one, you know, the whole VC community and valuation had dramatically changed between January and July. Right. So the first thing was, you know, the long putt and the play on those things wasn't as juicy as we thought it was 18 months ago. Second, the amount of cash that we were burning in those longer horizons. I wanted to repurpose them and put them more towards near-term solutions that our customers can see in the relevant 24 to 36 months as opposed to a you know three to five-year horizon. So that's the one of the biggest strategies we made. The other one that we made is you know, we were in a group called Fiddle, which is a finance business. We were using our balance sheet to finance the, the Biddle. Uh, we had about $3 billion of assets, uh, about a billion two or so that rolls every year. And what we decided to do is that we weren't going to use Xerox balance sheet for a lot of different reasons. One, the interest rates have changed significantly compared to what we could borrow off our balance sheet. And we went and we put some forward funding agreement. We use HBS, which now finances all of our leases going forward. What that does for us is it creates a significant amount of cash preservation on my side uh, that I'm not using cash as we start to put leases in place. So those are the strategic shifts that we made. It's interesting you brought up interest rates. One of the things we are covering here at The Verge quite a lot is the culture of the big tech companies is dramatically changing because interest rates are high and all of the sort of fang companies are creatures of low to zero interest rates. And you can just see this is having ripple effects throughout the culture of companies that I think most of us think of as institutions. Xerox is 100 years old. It has lived through many different interest rate environments how much has this changed the culture of Xerox? Because you're, you're talking about big changes that you've made, right? Like investments that you're pulling back, entire lines of business that you are re-architecting because interest rates have changed. It's a resilient company. It's an easy switch for me. Uh, you know, I've got good friends that are in streaming businesses. And now all of a sudden you think about from growth to now value and making that change overnight. They're challenged. They don't have the leadership. They don't have the capabilities to go do that. Uh, I'm pretty fortunate here at Xerox. We are very resilient. You know, you think about when COVID hit, we lost $2 billion of top line, like overnight. And so that first quarter was about literally trying to get break even with cash flow. And we would not have been able to do it if we didn't have a culture of resiliency. Uh, What we saw with supply chains, what we saw with Ukraine, Russia, Ukraine, Russia for us, 
was pretty significant, not only in terms of the impact on our employees, but the impact on our revenue and what was happening in the entire environment, the ecosystem that we were supporting in Russia. And so, you know, it was for us, we've been a very resilient company, supply chain, COVID, the interest rates cannily is a small, you know, water off a duck's back compared to everything else that, that we've been through and this company has been through. So uh, I think we're very resilient and, you know, capable of being able to navigate through some of these uh, clear macro challenges that we see out there. Well, let me ask you just philosophically where that resiliency comes from. I mean, you weren't the CEO the last time interest rates were high. You maybe have never been in a C-suite the last time interest rates were this high. Most of your employees have never experienced it. Right. You're talking about reinventing Xerox for most of this conversation. Yep. The company is new compared to whatever the company was 10, 50, 100 years ago. Where does that resiliency come from? Do people just walk through the halls looking at old pictures of the Xerox buildings? I, I'll, give you, I'll give you two examples. Yeah. You know, last month, I had two employees, one 50-year anniversary, second one 45-year anniversary, the month of January. So we've got a lot of tenured employees. We've got employees that have seen a lot of change through the years. You could think about the dot-com bust. You could think about the financial crisis, 9-11. You know, you pick it. A lot of this team and this company has been through a lot of it and the resiliency of all of that. You know, the you talk about the Fuji, you know, the Fuji Xerox breakup and the emotion, losing the CEO and the board fights and all that. That's dramatic to an employee base. That's dramatic to a company come out the other side of it, resilient. And candidly, you know, when the interest rates hit, everybody just said, take a deep breath. We're going to be okay. We're going to be fine. All right. This is yes, inflationary. Yes, it's challenging. We're going to be just fine. And I think that's the key that we see and that I see with the management team and the company. There's no panic. There's a lot of resiliency. There's a lot of, okay, we're going we're gonna to get through this set division. Tell me how we get through it. So it is a very resilient company. And candidly, it's a, it's a, a tremendous culture that we have here that supports each other, both in terms of employees and the communities that we live in. I tend to think that culture is a product of structure. As I keep saying, I, this is secretly a show about org charts. How is Xerox structured today? How have you structured the company? Yeah, so you know we've got two BU leaders uh, that run the regions. I've got somebody that runs EMEA, somebody that runs uh, the Americas. I then have my my support functions. So I've got a president and COO that runs all the support functions. Uh, I have a traditional CFO and a CHRO. So the two regions run the P and L, and think about my president and COO runs all the functions that supports the P and L. Right, so that's pretty simple. It's it's not a overly complicated one. We do really good in matrix management in terms of, you know, does the product team on the P&L, does the regions on the P&L, it's pretty clear the regions on the P&L and the product team supports it. Uh, but when we want to look at, you know, P&L by product or P&L by whatever the service is, uh, we can turn it upside down pretty well. And it's a really good matrix organization. I will tell you about organization. It's, it's less about the structure, more about the people. It's funny because I feel like I could I could just roll the dice on whatever CEO and it's like a 50-50 shot on that answer. Yeah, look, I've worked in a German company. I was a global CIO for DHL. I worked for Nortel. It was the first time in my, my career when I failed. It was a Canadian company. I worked for Lenovo, which was a Beijing, China-based company, okay? And I will tell you, all of them had different attributes, different org charts, and it's all about the leadership. It's all about the people and the, and the organization. You know, I say all the time, you know, I'd rather have 
all good B players that work together that can deal with anything that gets thrown at us than a team of all A players that is individual players that doesn't have the right culture. It's so important to have the right team. It's so important to have the right culture, especially as you go through, you know, the challenges that we've gone through over the last 30, 30 months. This is the famous, I think, Andreessen Lion culture strategy for breakfast, right? That's what you're, you're getting at. Is that- That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, so let me ask you the classic decoder question, which is you have a lot of decisions to make. You had to decide whether you wanted to be the CEO of the company. You had to decide if you wanted to change some of the roadmaps. You had to get through the last two plus years of tremendous change. You had to walk away from the HP deal. How do you make decisions? First, the North Star, what's right for our stakeholders. And I really mean that every day we look at that, whether it's employee decisions or shareholder decisions or customer decisions, we make it and focus on our stakeholders. Number one, we do something what we call a four rolling quarter and a 12 rolling quarter. In other words, when we make decisions, it's not just for the annual year-to-year P&L. It's also in line of where we're going over the next three years, right? You can make a decision with a product, or you can make a decision in IT, or you know, you pick a decision that's really good for the fiscal year that you're in and not be good for the next three years strategically, right? So we try to look at it both in terms of four-quarter and 12-quarter planning when we make those big decisions, right? It has a combination of strategically, does it set us where we want to be? Number one. Number two, does it allow us to hit and achieve our in-year goals? The other thing I was saying, you know, the hardest thing for people in this seat to do is to say no, to say no. So how do you how do you make that decision and how do you say no, right? When I look at it and you think about go-to-market or you think about products, right, do I have the right attributes to launch products? Do I have the right attributes to keep in a country? Do I have the right attributes to keep within a product in a certain company? And if the answer is no, then we make the decision very quickly, right? And so, you know, it's funny, I asked the team, you know, how would I enter a market? And they'll give you very specific things. I gotta be number one, number two, it's gotta be growing, I gotta have, and I'll give you all the attributes. Then you'll say, okay, do I have that attribute in country X, Y, Z in Europe? Why am I number five and not number two? Why do I have those same decisions? So I take that same criteria And I apply it against existing business that allows me to say, do I stay in or do I get out? Do I make a change to the strategy? What do you think the most important decision you have made at Xerox is so far? I think for me right now, it's bringing in President CEO. I brought a number two in that allowed me to now me focus on external. I focused on customers, focused on shareholders, focused on talent, focused on capital allocation. If I had my old job on, you know, running supply chain, running IT and the day-to-day stuff, I can't be thinking strategically. You know, talent management is extremely important today. Extremely important today. You talk about culture. How do I get the energy back? One of the things I talk about with the company is how do we drive energy every day? Every day. And I've got an SLT of 100 plus employees or 100 plus leaders. And I say, your job every day is to drive energy. You're not driving energy, you're sucking energy. It's that simple. And so you can either be an energy driver or an energy sucker. What do you want to go do, right? And I mean that because people want to come to a place that's exciting. People want to come to a place that's energetic. And in the hybrid world and not as many people in the office, how do you create that environment where people are excited? You know, people want a purpose. They want to know that they're making a difference in the world. They want to make know that they're working with people that make a difference in the world. And so for me, 
I've got to create that environment. And I've spent a lot of time on the road driving that with customers, with employees, with our investor base, working on how do you get talent? How do you get universities excited about coming to Xerox (laughs) if they don't know what we're doing, right? So spending time with universities, right? Speaking at universities, right? So my job is a lot more outward facing than it was. And so that's probably my biggest decision and the best decision I made. I brought on, you know, one of the best, I believe, in the industry and in John Bruno. John was president CEO at Aon uh, and, you know, did a great job over there. His background is with uh, Merrill Lynch and driving companies like NCR and Symbol and Cisco. So he's got a great background and uh, I, I'm really proud of the team and the, the what we have ahead of us. I'm definitely going to steal the energy giver, energy sucker one. I can't wait to tell my team to not be energy suckers. I'm thinking about it right now. I'm like already two hours ahead in the next staff meeting. You were the COO. You took over for a CEO. You've now hired a new COO. We actually end up talking on Decoder a lot about this classic COO taking over for a CEO transition. Sometimes it works great. Tim Cook takes over for Steve Jobs, works great, legendary business success. Sometimes Bob Iger comes back yeah. and says, this was a disaster. I don't want to do this. And that's kind of a 50-50 shot too. Have you thought about the fact that maybe being the COO who takes over as a CEO half the time, it just seems to not work out? You can probably tell by my energy because I, <laughs> I look forward, never look back. Yeah, right? Failure is not an option for me. I never think about it that way. Do I do a lot of study on first-year CEOs and do a lot of reading? Absolutely. Do I reach out to other CEOs? Bill McDermott, really good friend over at ServiceNow and a good friend of mine over at Motorola and Greg Brown. You know, do I reach out? Absolutely. Absolutely. What are the pitfalls? What do I need to do? What do I need to think about, right? Um, but no different than you take over any job, I'll be honest with you. I don't think about the CEO role any different than a job that I step into that you need to make sure that you make your mark and make sure you have impact on all aspects of, of the people that interact with you and do the best you can each and every day. And so I don't look back and I don't think about it. I think if I do my job to my fullest, uh, we're going to be just fine. But clearly you have thought about it a little, right? You said your most important decision you made was hiring someone to replace you as COO. What is the biggest thing you've had to change going from one role to the other? Well, for me, since I've been such a big operator, I think about I was CIO for 30 plus years and CEO, president COO for several companies now. Uh, you're an operator by your very nature. You want to double click and triple click and, and get into every single detail. Uh, and the reality is I can't do that anymore. I, I can't do that and, and use the CEO role uh, that I want to be effectively. You know, it's interesting because the board asked me uh, during the interview process, what type of CEO do you want to be? Uh, and they were really asking, you know, do you want to be an operator or do you want to be an outward facing CEO? Uh, and I think, you know, my role very clearly up front was uh, be the face to this company, be the face to uh, where we're going, whether it's from employees, whether it's to investors, whether it's to customers. A lot of people don't know what we're doing. A lot of people, I didn't know you guys had that business. I didn't know you were doing this. I didn't know you were doing that. And so, you know, spending more time out there, spending more time on news channels. Xerox has a great brand, but it's synonymous with print, right? I've got to get the industry to understand that, you know, we we are more than just print. We are in AI. We are in augmented reality. We are in machine learning. We are in robotics as a service. We are driving things like cybersecurity and CIO in the box, uh, things that nobody would know about unless I spend time you know, sharing them externally uh, with what we're doing. When I think about other companies of a similar vintage who've made that kind of transition, 
obviously IBM comes to mind to a certain degree. HP comes to mind, right? These have become consultancies, IT consultancies. Is that the long-term vision? Do you see print declining and that taking over for the future of Xerox? Yeah, so I call it and, 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 right? So it'll be print, managed print services, digital services, IT services, and pure services, right? So absolutely. Uh, but it's a journey, right? It, you know, even if you go out three to five years from now, 25% of my revenue will be in new services. Balance will still be pretty adjacent to the core. I mean, you know, I remember if you remember when the IBM PC spin out was, was, was done and the debate about, well, laptops are going away. Take a look at the IDC numbers <laughs> of laptops. <laughs> yeah, we're also right? using iPads right now. I don't know if yeah. you've heard well, about that. But, but you know what happened? We now, and, 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 iPads, iPhones, you know, and laptops, right? I've got three devices sitting in front of me now, right? <laughs> and so, you know, we, we, we don't have the either or. There's still a lot of print. And print, yes, is declining. No question, digitalization has accelerated that. But there's a tremendous amount of print out there. And, you know, we think about print just in one way, but think about your Starbucks cups. Think about, you know, your packages that come in from Amazon. All of those have print on it. Those will be, think about the big retail stores. We used to walk in and there was a big advertisement. What happens when, you know, a big portion of your retail experience comes through a box? How do you advertise in a box? There's a lot of printing to be had. There's, there's a lot of, you know, we still see 95% of the production print, right, is in analog. Think about that. What happens when that all goes digital? Tremendous opportunity. After the break, we're gonna talk about how Xerox can appeal to the next generation and the future of Xerox's famous research and development arm, PARP. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're back. It's a Verge podcast. I got to ask some very direct questions about consumer products and a park. Yeah. We can't not yeah. talk about park and a Verge podcast. But when people think about printers and they think about Xerox printers, they think about your consumer products. They're not necessarily beloved. I don't think like consumer printers are the most beloved product category in the world. How do you think? Is that still an opportunity? Are you trying to get Gen Z to, to buy printers? No. Are you just saying this is declining and we're just going to let it fade into the, to the sunset here? We have never been in the home printer business. We've always been in the office business, um, small offices, large offices, complex facilities. We have never been in the print business for consumer and consumers. It, that's not our market. That's not what we've done. But I'm thinking about the, the office printer is is is... Right. It's an enterprise product, but the end user there is basically a consumer. Oh, for sure. For yeah. sure. But again, that's where we that's where you get to how do you think about a GBU chip and a screen and now not thinking about it as just a printer. Sure. What else can I do with that device? That's where we can we have a tremendous amount of office value that we can bring. All right. So you're right. If it's just a print and it's just scanning. And it's a multi-purpose device in its old configuration, for sure. 
Absolutely. Digital transformation and digital disruption, the hybrid workforce significantly disrupting that. Have you thought about just like adding TikTok to the office printer to get Gen Z to, to go use it more? You know, it's funny because one of the employee resource groups is called Young Professionals. I sponsor the YP group, the Young <laughs> Professional group. And it's like nails on a blackboard. I love them. <laughs> I, every 30 days I meet with them. It's like, when are you going to do TikTok, Steve? Yeah. You know, when are you going to do, you know. Put TikTok when, when, on the office printer, man. I'm telling <laughs> you, this, exactly is, this is the opportunity. Exactly. What are we? What are we going to do? Like you know, NFTs. When are we going to do Don't crypto, do Steve? Like Don't and, do that. you know, it's like I. <laughs> but you know, we made a pivot. I made a pivot back in when I first took this job. We didn't do any podcasts internally. We didn't do anything. Now I started something called the Xerox Factor, right? Where we do podcasts with sales team, with product team, with customers, with partners. We talk about subjects that are relevant that can teach people on how. You asked a very good question around how do you get your mid-sized customers to adapt these other technologies. Well, what do I do? I bring in sales technicians and I bring in the team and says, okay, how did you get that law firm to adapt RPA? How did you get that hospital to adopt AI and what we're doing? How'd you sell that digital services solution? What'd you do? And I let them tell them story because that naturally resonates with other sales team, that naturally resonates with other regions. You know, one of the things that I believe is, you know, we've got a tremendous customer base today, I can double my wallet share inside my existing customers by bringing products and services that already exist. I just got to do a better job telling the story and I got to do a better job in driving that customer success. You got a chip and a screen and that chip could be running TikTok and that app should you, be you, showing you. I, I will take you, it to the is, team. If you I do this, I'm taking a royalty. <laughs> <laughs> Most people think about printers as classic razors and blades, right? You, you sell the printer at cost. You make all the money on toner. Xerox is a fairly unique printer company in that yeah. you sell toner and cartridges for other people's products as well. That is a dicey zone, right? I mean, there's like endless lawsuits there. There's all kinds of shady dealings there. Is that is that a continuing business for you? Or is that just, I got to get in the door to sell you more services? No, no. So I go into an office building and they may have two or three products in there. Okay, they may have us, HP, Konica, they may have a couple of OEMs in there. And they don't want to deal with all the OEMs. So I go in and I say, I will manage your entire environment. And as your Konica or as your HP goes off a lease or gets ready to get renewed, we'll renew it with Xerox product. Okay. But we will use genuine toner in their products. We're not going into, you know, third markets to go bring toner. Using my technicians, they're already on site. We're getting original parts from the manufacturers, right? So we're not taking, we're not taking third world products into these environments. We're taking it over, we're managing it, we're providing it as a service. And as the technology gets old or as the lease rolls off, we're replacing it with Xerox equipment. Do those companies do the same thing back to you? Is that something? Oh, for that, sure. That seems like it's ferociously competitive. It is, except for one thing. We've got one of the best service teams in the world, okay? You know, you take a look at some of my competitors. They stitch together a bunch of OEMs and stitch together a bunch of service companies. Most of my service is direct through my team, and we service it with our team with all the tools, all the capabilities. So I talked about CareIR. You think about all the tools that we have in terms of supply replenishment, in terms of understanding and knowing when your product is going to run out of supply. You know, a customer just wants to print, 
And they make, we make it very simple for them. They pay by the page. Everything else we deal with. Last couple here. I said I had to ask about Park. Yeah. Park is legendary, right? I mean, this is where the graphical user interface comes from. This is where Ethernet comes from. We have a partnership with the Computer History Museum. It feels like all we ever talked about them was Park and things that yeah. happen at Park. Xerox still runs Park. What What do you want to get out of that organization? So there's two things with Park. So Park, in its very nature, is pure research. It's trying to solve some of the world's challenging problems. We would never do, and we would never try to solve an HVAC system if we were thinking about just pure print. Okay, the technology that they came up with Mojave was to recycle all the pollutants that come out of the HVAC equipment by over eighty percent. Think about that: the world's pollution and on the world's pollution that comes out of HVAC system today is equal to the entire airline industry. And we've created technology that potentially can improve that by 80%. Now, it's pure research. It's not a product yet. It's not built into carriers, not built into Siemens products. It's pure research. In addition to it, it tries to solve some of the challenges that we have in the office environment, some of the challenges we have in the print environment, some of the things that we think about. You think about printing on packages, right? Think about digital print and how do you print on surfaces like Amazon or like a Walmart on their boxes as it goes through their production system? Can you print marketing material fast enough as it goes through their normal warehouse? Can't slow that process down to print. Can we create print technology and capabilities that we can do it at the same time as inline print, right? We do a lot of work with obviously DOD and a lot of work with the government and specifically trying to solve some of, some of their challenges and help them. Uh, but Park isn't always about just pure products at the end for Xerox. We solve a lot of the world's challenges, a lot of the world's problems through the innovation that we see inside of Park. Part of the model of Park is licensing the IP and the innovations that come out of it to other companies. For sure. Part of it is just doing it. You talked, we've talked a lot about the balance sheet and the challenges and the yeah. restructuring that you've done. Is it hard to justify? Okay, we've got a pure research arm here. And sometimes it hits, and sometimes Steve Jobs walks away and makes the Mac, and that's the end of that. It is. We're one of the very few companies that's still doing research for the sake of research. You, know, you think about some of the companies that have moved away from that model. We clearly have pulled into yours. We don't spend as much as we used to. Uh, we've pulled back. I gave you a couple of examples of things that we've started up that, one, we shut down. Two, we got outside money and now we're spun off and it's running on its own with venture capital money. So we have done that. And you got to balance it, right? And, you know, it's a lot different when we were, you know, five, six years ago, the free cash that we were generating versus what we're generating today, right? But the mission of Park, the what we're trying to do with Park is still there, still trying to solve some of the world's challenges. Uh, it's just a matter of how much we can invest in Park to go do that. And you're absolutely right. As as your core print business gets more and more challenged, it gives us less opportunity, less freedom to be able to do some of those things. Is there any element where you just don't want to be the CEO of a hundred year old company that shut down Xerox Park? No. This is exciting. Today, you know, driving this company is exciting. If you think about research and you think about, by the way, you know, we've got another company up in Canada uh, that has similar type of attributes to Park. Uh, would we potentially partner with somebody and do something different with Park? Sure, for sure. Okay. But Park is important. The legacy of Park is extremely important. We are incredibly proud of what Park and Xerox have done to impact the world. And, you know, we'll continue that journey. 
Last question. We started by saying, here's the new plan. Here's what we wanted to do. A lot of it was consolidation, right? I mean, you became the CEO because of a plan to consolidate the industry. COVID hit, didn't happen. You've bought a couple of little companies along the way. You said your background's M&A. Is that still the plan? Do you want there to be more consolidation in the spaces that Xerox are in? So I think there's a couple of things. There's too many players in the industry, in my opinion, very similar to the laptop industry going back, you know, 15 years ago, whether it was Gateway or Toshiba, you know, you picked the, there was a numerous brands that were out there. It will consolidate. I do believe this industry will consolidate. Prior to COVID, these companies had a valuation of X, COVID hit, they've got a valuation of Y. Wait, is Y bigger than, Y has to be smaller than X, I'm yeah, assuming. Well, yeah. much smaller, right? If you want to, if you want to, <laughs> the market cap on these companies, you know, post-COVID, certainly with the new print models that we're seeing, is significantly reduced, right? So if you're a buyer, you want to buy on the last 12 months performance, last 18 months performance. If you're a seller, you're saying, hey, we will get back to somewhere closer to 2019 levels. People need to get back to the office. We'll see print rebound. And so you've got a very large gap between a buyer and seller right now in terms of valuation. I think they'll, they'll come closer as the new norm and the new reality sets in. The second piece of that is the cash that's out there, the liquidity that's out there, is not the same as it was back in January. Right. So you, you're seeing, you know, buyer and seller further apart and you're seeing the cash and liquidity is pretty challenging today. So I think it's going to be a little while before we see further consolidation in our industry. I still believe that the basic economics is too many players in our industry. Do you look at the DOJ saying right, we got to stop all these mergers as an obstacle to that plan? Look, I, it depends on the administration. I got to be honest with you, right? You know, each administration has a different opinion on industry. Uh, I do think that the geopolitical challenges of what we're seeing today uh, from Russia and certainly from 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 uh, China uh, will have a significant impact on DOJ going forward and thinking about you know what industries need to look like, right? Um, but, you know, the DOJ is, is challenged because who is a competitor? Is Amazon a competitor? <laughs> right. It, 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 they're really a challenge with, you know, laws that go back to telecom days of Mom Bell and trying to think about how do you apply today's technology and try to apply today's competitiveness to those questions. Right. And so but, yeah, right now it's a tough environment to consolidate where you're taking big companies and trying to put them together. Uh, DOJ has taken a lot closer look at these deals. Well, you look over the course of 100 years, that in particular has maybe changed the most in terms of how we think about big business in this country. Hopefully, we're going to talk again another 100 years. That's my plan is we're going to live another 100 years. We'll have this conversation again. Steve, this was great. Thank you so much for coming on Decoder. Thanks for having me. It was a great conversation. Thanks again to Steve Vanderzak for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. You can follow us on TikTok. We're at DecoderPod. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. It was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Hadley Robinson. It was edited by Jackson Bierfeld. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters, and our executive director is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.